It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Reporters crowded outside Susanna Cahalan's hospital room, clamoring to interview the woman whose father had just killed her stepmother. Susanna laid in her bed, terrified, watching herself on the top of the hour news. She frantically tapped the nurse's call button, shaking with fear. They needed to know not to let the paparazzi in. She shrieked at them, telling anyone who would listen that she was on the news. The nurses responded by handing her some pills. Susanna took them, but they didn't stop her from thrashing in her bed. She could hear the other patients in the shared room whispering. One was on the phone, trying to get in touch with someone at the New York Post to give them an exclusive take on Susanna. The roommate then suddenly told Susanna that the nurses couldn't be trusted. They could hear her over the security cameras. Frightened, Susanna yanked out the EEG wires glued to her head, threw them on the floor, and bolted out of the room. She ran past the security guards, cutting around corners to avoid them. She was only feet from freedom when a nurse appeared in front of her and she crashed right into their arms. She kicked and screamed as the nurse wrestled her to the ground. Maybe if Susanna wasn't in such a psychotic state, the nurse could have explained that the cameras, the reporters, and the roommate's warning weren't real. They were all hallucinations, the kind that had plagued Susanna for weeks. Her brain was deteriorating from an illness doctors couldn't identify. They needed to find out why it was all happening, or else she might lose her mind forever. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a podcast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love— let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our second episode on Susanna Cahalan and anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. Last week, we followed Susanna's increasing psychosis, which turned her from an up-and-coming journalist into a paranoid hospital patient. 
emotional breakdowns and seizures led her to be admitted to New York University's Langone Medical Center, but doctors were unable to find the true cause of her suffering. This week, we'll explore Susanna's month-long hospital stay as her illness continued to wreak havoc on her brain. We'll also meet the doctor that finally figured out her diagnosis using one simple test. 24-year-old Susanna Cahalan was living a perfect life. She was fulfilling her dream of being a journalist for the New York Post. She lived on her own in Manhattan, spending her nights with friends and a new boyfriend she was quickly falling in love with. However, in the winter of 2009, Susanna's life was uprooted by paranoia, psychosis, and rapid mood swings. Her strange behavior escalated until it put her own life in danger. With guesses ranging from mononucleosis to bipolar disorder to alcohol withdrawal, doctors were unable to pinpoint what exactly was wrong. On March 23, 2009, Susanna's symptoms brought her to New York University's Langone Medical Center, but she barely made it through the lobby before she had another seizure. Susanna was admitted to the Advanced Monitoring Unit, where staff were able to keep an eye on her 24 hours a day through the security cameras over her bed. At first, she was cooperative. She answered questions from nurses about her health history and allowed them to take her vitals, all of which were relatively normal. But Susanna didn't stay compliant for long. On her first day, an EEG technician entered to attach electrodes to her head so doctors could constantly monitor her brainwaves. As we discussed last week, an EEG records brain activity and aids in diagnosing and treating seizures. However, the technician didn't know who they were dealing with. As soon as they tried to put the electrodes on her, Susanna thrashed around in her bed and flailed her arms. She pleaded with them to stop while her mother attempted to calm her. She did slowly relax, but within 24 hours, Susanna had a reputation at the hospital. Doctors discovered her mood swings and violent outbursts weren't going to make their jobs easy. But she wasn't just lashing out at the staff. She banned some of her family from even entering her room. When her stepfather visited, she screamed at the nurses to keep him out. She had the same reaction when her father entered, telling hospital staff he was a kidnapper. She still believed the persecutory delusions that had begun days earlier and was unable to separate psychosis from reality. Her delusions only grew more intense as her hospital stay continued. On her first night, an on-call neurologist tried to ask her about her medical history. By this point, Susanna's mind was severely scattered from her psychosis. She recounts in her book, Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness, how illogical and tangential her responses became. She told the doctor that her father was changing into different people in an attempt to trick her. On the occasions when her father looked like himself, she thought he was just an imposter. What this doppelganger was trying to trick her into was unclear. These delusions fit a psychological condition called Capra syndrome. 
In this type of delusion, first described in 1923 by psychiatrist Joseph Capgras, a patient thinks their loved one has been replaced with an imposter. While the person's face looks familiar to the sufferer, they do not experience the same feeling of recognition they normally would, creating a sense of unfamiliarity. Capgras syndrome can be a symptom of schizophrenia, which is likely why the neurologist prescribed Susanna a low dose of Geodon, an antipsychotic medication. Schizophrenia causes a person to hallucinate, have difficulty focusing, and experience other types of delusions. Schizophrenia is often confused with Susanna's previous diagnosis, bipolar disorder, due to their similar symptoms. Whatever condition Susanna had, the hallucinations and delusions were happening more and more frequently. Later on, during her first night at the hospital, she got out of bed to use the bathroom. While she was in there, she believed she saw someone watching her through the slit in the door. She sprinted back to her bed, screaming for whoever it was to get away from her. She called her mother on the phone, telling her that people in the hospital were trying to hurt her, making fun of her and spying on her in the bathroom. When the nurse entered the room, Susanna hung up. The nurse's lips didn't move, but Susanna hallucinated her saying, I see you on the news. Susanna's paranoia inflamed. She believed she wasn't safe in the hospital. She thought, if I don't leave now, I will never get out alive. She frantically pulled the electrodes off her scalp, chunks of hair coming out along with them. Finally, she was disconnected. She was free. She bolted out of the hospital room and ran down the halls, shrieking. She was only stopped after the nurses tackled her. She kicked and screamed while they carried her back to her bed. The next day, Susanna met some new doctors assigned to her case. Each one provided a different piece to the puzzle. Replacing the on-call neurologist from the previous night was Dr. Russo, who became Susanna's neurologist for the remainder of her stay. Once again, Susanna was too delusional to answer Dr. Russo's questions. Instead, she paced around the room, periodically trying to force her way past the hospital staff that guarded the door. When Dr. Russo brought her back to the bed, Susanna ranted that people on TV were talking about her. In this case, Susanna was experiencing what are called ideas of reference, sometimes used interchangeably with the term delusions of reference. Both terms refer to the belief that unconnected everyday occurrences are directly related to a specific individual. This can manifest in several ways. It can be small, like a person believing that everybody is talking about them when they enter the room. But the delusion can also take bizarre turns, like causing someone to believe a television show is transmitting secret messages that only they can understand. In Susanna's case, she believed newscasters were reporting on her. While these delusions are common in schizophrenia patients, Dr. Russo believed that Susanna could have postictal psychosis, also known as PIP. 
Postictal psychosis is a condition that usually occurs within a week following a seizure. Its symptoms include hallucinations, depressive and manic episodes, and paranoia. It is common after major tonic-clonic seizures like the one Susanna had in her apartment. Psychosis associated with PIP can last anywhere from 12 hours to more than three months. Dr. Russo couldn't definitively say whether Susanna had postictal psychosis yet, but added it to the list of her potential diagnoses. Soon after Dr. Russo left, Susanna met the third doctor to join her case, Dr. Siegel. One of the best doctors in the country, Susanna describes him in her memoir as a charismatic, grandfatherly man with perpetual good cheer. When he met Susanna's mother, he extended his hand and confidently told her, we will figure this out. Susanna will be fine. Susanna's mother believed Dr. Siegel, his kind words becoming one of the only bright spots in these darkening days. While Dr. Russo brought a new potential diagnosis to the case, Dr. Siegel brought much-needed hope to the family. Susanna's medical team kept growing throughout her first week. While meeting her fourth doctor, Susanna revealed that she could suddenly hear people's thoughts. Hailing from the hospital's Department of Psychiatry, Dr. Kahn listened patiently as Susanna told her that she could read the nurses' minds. They were all making fun of her amongst each other. In fact, Susanna believed the whole world was mocking her. Dr. Kahn asked Susanna more questions about her health history and determined that she either had an unknown mood or psychotic disorder. She recommended to the staff that Susanna be assigned a security guard because of her escape attempts. However, as Dr. Kahn spoke, her voice trailed off and Susanna became fixated on the doctor's smooth, olive-colored skin. Soon, Dr. Khan's face swirled in front of her. Her hair slowly turned gray. Crow's feet branched from her eyes as they began to droop. Her teeth turned yellow. Her mouth and cheeks lost their shape. Her entire face filled with wrinkles. Dr. Khan was aging rapidly. Of course, it was actually Susanna whose health was deteriorating more rapidly than anyone could comprehend. Coming up, as Susanna's mind and body start to fail, her doctors start losing hope she'll ever be cured. Now, back to the story. In 2009, 24-year-old Susanna Kahalen was admitted into NYU Hospital due to her rapidly declining mental state and frequent seizures. In her first three days, she fought with hospital staff tried to escape her room and experienced new psychotic delusions. She was hallucinating that people were making fun of her, reporting about her on TV and suddenly aging before her eyes. Her psychiatrist, Dr. Khan's youthful radiant skin began to wrinkle within seconds. Susanna turned to her boyfriend, Stephen, and saw he was suffering the same fate. His brown hair and stubble turned white Susanna looked back at the doctor. Suddenly, a youthful glow emerged from the woman's skin. Her wrinkles smoothed as her sunken cheeks ballooned, 
filling up with baby fat. The old woman was now 13. Susanna writes in her book, I have a gift. I can age people with my mind. This is who I am, and they cannot take this away from me. I am powerful, stronger than I have ever been in my life. Of course, she wasn't more powerful. She was slipping deeper into psychosis and racking up new misdiagnoses with each doctor that joined her team. Her fifth doctor in three days was a psychopharmacologist named Dr. Arslan. He interviewed Susanna, her parents, nursing staff, and even Susanna's original neurologist, who incorrectly accused her of drinking two bottles of wine a night. Based on the information he gathered from these interviews, Dr. Arslan had two possible diagnoses. PIP, as Dr. Russo had theorized, and schizoaffective disorder. This is one of the more complicated mood disorders that combines symptoms of both schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. People with schizoaffective disorder often lose touch with reality and experience hallucinations along with extreme paranoia, much like Susanna. They also have extreme depression or manic episodes, much like a patient with bipolar disorder. Though it was slightly demoralizing for Susanna's family, it's not surprising that each doctor had a new diagnosis. Teeming with electrical impulses, the human brain is one of the most complicated and mysterious organs in our body. And that's when it's healthy. Once mental illness comes into play, the mind becomes even more of a labyrinth. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, Nearly one in five U.S. adults live with a mental illness. The problem is, many mental illnesses have similar symptoms. Bipolar disorder, for example, has some of the same symptoms as depression, schizophrenia, and ADHD. This often leads to a misdiagnosis, which can hinder a person's chances of recovery. At first, given that Susanna's psychotic symptoms occurred alongside her seizures, Dr. Russo's PIP diagnosis seemed like the answer. However, Susanna stopped having seizures after her first day at the hospital. By her fourth day, PIP was ruled out. Her psychosis was clearly getting worse, and doctors felt that wouldn't happen without more seizures if she had PIP. Soon, the psychosis had increased so much that Dr. Russo recommended the team could move her into the psych ward if they thought it was best. Nurses made it clear to Susanna's father that they would send her there if she continued causing the staff trouble. Meanwhile, Susanna's family tried their best to stay strong. Her father spent every day outside of her room. People often found him intimidating, and he hoped his presence would signal to the nursing staff that someone was looking out for his daughter. He had to stay outside of the room, however, because Susanna, in her delusion, still believed he had murdered her stepmother. Occasionally, Susanna's psychosis receded enough for her to see her father clearly and let him in. Her psychosis was replaced by emotionless passivity, and she would plead to her father, I'm dying in here. This place is killing me. Please let me leave. It pained her father to know she had to stay for her own good. On the fourth day of her stay, 
He asked Susanna if she wanted to take a walk through the hospital halls. She agreed, though her body was stiff and weak. Her legs shot out in front of her, landing awkwardly as her father supported her stance. She walked as if she had to relearn how to do it all over again. Susanna's father hated seeing her this way, but urged her to stay positive. He would tell her, what is the slope of the line? It's positive. And what does positive mean? It means we make progress every day. All Susanna could do was stare at him blankly in response. Her father recorded the day's events in a journal that he passed back and forth with her mother, who visited during her lunch breaks. The journal was how they both stayed on the same page with new information that came when the other wasn't present. Susanna's parents weren't the only ones struggling to get a handle on her condition. Her boyfriend, Stephen, was by their side, sharing their pain. During her first week at the hospital, Susanna told Stephen, I know this is too much for you. I understand if you don't come back. I understand if I never see you again. But Stephen was there every day. His presence relaxed Susanna, to the point that nurses let him stay till midnight, well after visiting hours, if it meant Susanna was relaxed enough to not try and escape. Stephen brought DVDs of TV shows, concerts, and documentaries. When he'd leave for the night, he would keep a continuous loop of a Ryan Adams concert playing for her. He hoped the music would jolt something in Susanna's brain that would snap her out of her psychosis and bring her back. However, Susanna's brain was too far gone. Every time she watched the concert, to her, it was the first time she saw it. While doctors didn't know why yet, her mystery illness was ruining her short-term memory. As her brain function went, her body deteriorated as well. She became too weak to tear apart the wrapping paper on presents from family members. By her second week in the hospital, Susanna was slurring her words, mostly unable to speak in full sentences. She often only spoke with grunts or unintelligible sounds. When she did manage to speak, it was with a slight delay. In her book, she compared it to the speech of a mentally impaired child. A confident reporter who could once chat with anyone from celebrities to criminals was completely gone. Her mouth constantly chewed on nothing. She drooled with her tongue hung out of the side of her mouth like an overheated dog. During tests, she was barely able to stick her tongue out. Occasionally, her arms stiffened in front of her involuntarily. The doctors thought these were all signs that her brainstem or limbic system were impaired. The limbic system is a part of the brain located underneath the cerebral cortex. It's responsible for many emotional responses and survival functions, such as reproduction, fight or flight responses, and nutrition. The hippocampus is a major part of the limbic system, which plays a role in forming new memories. Beneath the limbic system is the brainstem, which connects the base of the brain to the spinal cord, sending messages to the rest of the body. It's responsible for swallowing, heart rate, consciousness, and blood pressure. In one of Susanna's more lucid moments, 
Dr. Siegel had the team perform a spinal tap on her. This procedure provided them with a sample of cerebrospinal fluid, which coats the brainstem and spinal cord. The spinal tap revealed that Susanna had a slightly elevated white blood cell count. Whereas a normal, healthy person has zero to five white blood cells per microliter in their spinal fluid, Susanna had 20. We have something, Dr. Siegel told the family. The elevated white blood cell levels were likely caused by inflammation or some kind of infection. While they didn't know what the cause was exactly, they finally had a lead. Dr. Siegel promised the family that they were going to figure out what was happening. Susanna notes that this was the first time her mother had smiled in weeks. While it was vague, it was a lead nonetheless. It also provided proof that whatever was ailing Susanna was a physical problem, not emotional or psychiatric. Dr. Siegel thought they were slowly getting closer to naming the disease and possibly curing it. However, he may have spoken too soon. The dozens of blood tests came back negative for both infectious diseases and autoimmune diseases, including Lyme disease, tuberculosis, multiple sclerosis, and lupus. It was a blow to everybody involved. Susanna's parents sensed that the doctors were starting to get discouraged. They knew if they couldn't find a physical diagnosis soon, Susanna was destined for the psych ward. The family needed somebody to believe in Susanna, no matter how hopeless it all seemed. Dr. Siegel was nowhere to be found after the blood test results arrived. Susanna's mother was worried. She wandered the hospital halls looking for him and eventually found him leaving another hospital room. When she asked Dr. Siegel about Susanna, he simply told her, I'm not on the case anymore. His warm, grandfatherly demeanor was gone. I don't know what to say. It's no longer my case, he said. One of the best doctors in the country, their only hope, had given up on Susanna. Susanna's mother stood abandoned in the hospital hall. She felt alone, kicking herself for believing the busy doctors saw Susanna as more than just another patient. What she didn't know was that a new doctor was on the case, a man with a thick mustache and a Syrian accent, known for being the man to go to when nothing made sense, Dr. Suhel Najjar. When Susanna's mother returned to her room, she learned that Dr. Siegel had called on Dr. Najjar because of his reputation for solving mystery cases that stumped everyone else. He gave Dr. Najjar a list of all of Susanna's previous diagnoses and symptoms. Najjar didn't believe the newest diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. Instead, he believed Susanna was suffering from a kind of viral encephalitis. Encephalitis is an inflammation of the brain, which can cause confusion and seizures. It often only presents itself as the flu at first, which is what Susanna believed she had weeks prior when her paranoia began. While many viruses can cause encephalitis, Najjar believed that Susanna's was caused by the herpes virus. However, her virus tests came back negative. Najjar's next theory was that she was suffering from some sort of autoimmune response. An autoimmune response occurs 
when our body's immune system not only attacks viruses and cells that harm our bodies, but our healthy cells as well. To treat the possible autoimmune response wreaking havoc on Susanna's health, he wanted to start Susanna on an IVIG treatment immediately. Thus, on April 2nd, 2009, her 11th day in the hospital, Susanna started a round of intravenous immunoglobulin infusions. IVIG is a serum made up of antibodies that are meant to attack rogue antibodies terrorizing a patient's healthy cells. While this provided a new lead in Susanna's case, it may have come too late. The next day, during her second round of IVIG treatment, Susanna's doctors noticed she was slipping into a catatonic state. According to Dr. Michael Craig Miller, catatonia is a motor dysregulation disorder that may be more similar to movement disorders than psychotic disorders. People with catatonia sometimes become rigid, are unable to speak, persistently stare, and make repetitive movements. Movements like Susanna's constant chewing. Even more worrying, Susanna was also developing a new symptom. On April 9th, the 18th day of her stay, Susanna struggled out of bed, falling to the floor. My heart hurts, Susanna told Stephen, struggling to get the words out through tears. Stephen called for a nurse who recorded her blood pressure as 155 over 97 and hooked her up to a tank of oxygen. Susanna would go on to experience this pain almost every night. She was never given an explanation as to what was causing it. However, thankfully, some answers were on their way. The results of her second spinal tap showed that her cerebrospinal fluid's white blood cell count was rising. This served as proof that her brain was inflamed. It was here, on her 19th day in the hospital, that Susanna's doctors were finally nearing a true diagnosis. Her charts were changed from psychosis to encephalitis of an unknown origin. Now they just had to figure out the cause. Susanna laid in her hospital bed, smacking her lips and drooling. Her tongue hung out to the side as she stared straight ahead, seemingly sleeping with her eyes open. At this point, her father was used to seeing Susanna like this. He sat beside her calmly reading his book. Later, the famous Dr. Najjar entered Susanna's room and finally took a look at the extensive history of Susanna's past symptoms. Dr. Najjar always stressed the importance of a full medical history. He believed that you have to look backward to see the future. He jotted down all of Susanna's symptoms from her seizures all the way back to her paranoia about bedbugs in her apartment, something that past doctors hadn't done before. After getting her history, Dr. Najjar turned to Susanna. He spoke to her like a friend, not a patient. In her words, he had a very personal, heartfelt bedside manner. He was sympathetic as he crouched down, leveling himself to Susanna's bed and said, I will do my best to help you. I will not hurt you. Susanna stared back at him emotionless. He started asking Susanna questions like, what month is it and who's the president? When Susanna could answer, 
she spoke with a low tone and a small delay. Next, Dr. Najjar asked Susanna to try and walk. He noticed that she walked in short bursts, angling toward her left side. Dr. Najjar thought Susanna was acting like one of his late-stage Alzheimer patients. It prompted him to think about the clock test, used to screen people for Alzheimer's and other neurological problems like dementia and stroke. All you need to perform the simple test is a pen and a piece of paper. Then, the patient is instructed to draw a circle and fill in all of the numbers present on a clock. While it sounds simple, Susanna struggled to complete the drawing. In her first attempt, she drew one lopsided circle. She was unhappy with it, so she asked for another sheet. On the second try, she drew a circle that satisfied her. She hesitated to draw the numbers, trying to remember exactly what a clock looked like. Finally, she slowly began drawing them, sometimes getting stuck on one number and drawing it several times. Eventually, she got all 12 onto the page. The thing was, she wrote all 12 numbers on only one side of the clock. The number one was where the 12 should be, and 12 was where the six should be. Dr. Najjar practically jumped out of his seat. Our brains are split up into left and right hemispheres, both of which interpret vision. The left hemisphere is responsible for our right fields of vision, and our right hemisphere is responsible for the left fields. The fact that Susanna's numbers were all on the right side of the clock showed Dr. Najjar that her right hemisphere, responsible for the left field of vision, was impaired. It was as if Susanna's brain neglected the left side of everything she saw. It was also the reason that the left side of Susanna's body, controlled by the right hemisphere, went numb back at the beginning of her illness. Dr. Najjar began putting the pieces together. He had already ruled out schizoaffective disorder and viral encephalitis. He was sure that Susanna's high white blood cell count and inflammation were the result of an autoimmune reaction. Even though her previous tests ruled out some autoimmune diseases, there were still dozens and dozens of diseases that weren't tested for. With all of this new information swirling in Dr. Najir's mind, he paced the room, twisting his mustache deep in thought. Susanna's parents watched him, waiting to hear what he was thinking. When he finally sat down, he told them, her brain is on fire. Coming up, we'll see how Dr. Najjar figures out Susanna's mystery illness and fights to bring her back to her old self. Now, back to the story. In the winter of 2009, 24-year-old Susanna Kahalen was admitted into NYU Langone Medical Center after suffering from seizures and paranoia. During her stay, her condition got worse as she lost brain and body function. Her doctors were losing faith that they'd ever save her, so they asked one more doctor to join their team, the brilliant Dr. Suhel Najjar. Dr. Najjar performed the clock test with Susanna, simply asking her to draw a clock as best she could. 
When she drew all of the clock's numbers on one side of a circle, Dr. Najjar figured out that she had an autoimmune disease which inflamed the right side of her brain and, in his words, set it on fire. Dr. Najjar turned to Susanna, telling her, I'm going to do everything I can for you. I promise. I will always be there for you. These words somehow reached the catatonic Susanna. With tears forming in her eyes, she struggled to hug Dr. Najjar. Though she quickly slipped back into her emotionless state, it was a sign that underneath all of the catatonia and psychosis, she was in there. Dr. Najjar jumped into action, telling Susanna's parents that her brain was being attacked by her own body. He remembered a doctor in Pennsylvania who treated a series of patients with a rare autoimmune disease and wondered if the same disease was plaguing Susanna. He wanted to send Susanna's blood and spinal fluid to this doctor who knew the proper tests that could diagnose her. But to find out the true extent of her inflammation, Najjar told her family they would need to perform a brain biopsy. Susanna's parents were frightened, even though Najjar reassured them that he would recommend the same procedure if it were his own child. Susanna's grandmother had been a registered nurse, and she had seen horrible things happen to patients after brain surgery. Susanna's father had to remind himself that medicine had come a long way since his mother's time as an RN. They allowed the doctors to perform the procedure, and it went off without any complications. Slides from the biopsy showed Susanna's immune system was attacking her brain's nerve cells. This was the proof Dr. Najjar needed. Susanna definitely had an autoimmune disease. While Dr. Najjar put Susanna on an aggressive steroid treatment for the inflammation, her blood and spinal fluid arrived at a lab at the University of Pennsylvania, run by neuro-oncologist Joseph Dalmau. Two years before Susanna's symptoms appeared in 2007, Dr. Dalmau had identified a new autoimmune disease, anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. In this condition, the body produces antibodies that attack the brain's NMDA receptors. These receptors play a key role in creating new pathways in the brain that help us learn new information. When they're under attack by antibodies, it causes the exact type of inflammation Susanna was experiencing. As the disease progresses, it can cause seizures, hallucinations, catatonic states, short-term memory loss, and can eventually turn lethal. Its symptoms are often exactly the same as psychiatric disorders like bipolar disorder or depression. All of these symptoms matched up with Susanna's case perfectly, and her samples tested positive for anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. She was the 217th person ever to be diagnosed with the condition. On April 16th, her 25th day in the hospital, Dr. Russo came into the hospital room to find Susanna with her dad. When she revealed that they finally had her diagnosis, Susanna's dad wanted to collapse and thank God right there. Unfortunately, Susanna could only stare off into the distance. 
they couldn't tell if the good news was reaching her. That is, until Dr. Russo said that anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis is often caused by an ovarian tumor. Specifically, a tumor named teratoma, a name derived from a Greek word meaning monster, which is fitting since teratomas can sometimes grow their own teeth and hair. Dr. Russo explained that if Susanna had this kind of tumor, it could be connected with her past case of melanoma and she could need chemotherapy. Susanna sobbed when she heard chemo. She told her father, this is killing me. I'm dying in here. He rocked her until she calmed down and returned to her emotionless state. Before Dr. Russo left, she emphasized that this was all good news. They had answers, and Dr. Najjar believed they could get Susanna 90% back to her old self, which isn't always the case with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. According to the Autoimmune Encephalitis Alliance, the damage the disease causes to the brain can be irreversible. Susanna's 90% estimate made her one of the lucky ones. She tested positive just in time, too. In anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, catatonia, Susanna's state at the time, precedes coma, breathing failure, and death. Her luck continued as an ultrasound revealed she was tumor-free. Dr. Najjar felt ready to begin a three-pronged attack of treatment. They were going to use steroids to reduce the inflammation, use IVIG to reduce and attack the rogue antibodies, and get rid of more of those antibodies with plasmapheresis. According to Healthline, plasmapheresis is a process similar to dialysis, where a machine separates plasma from blood cells and replaces it with new plasma that is free of harmful antibodies. The best news of all was that the steroids could be taken orally and the other treatments could be done in visits to the hospital or with an at-home nurse, meaning that Susanna was finally allowed to go back home. Susanna and her family packed up all of the clothes, books, and DVDs that it helped make their hellish experience a little easier. 27 days ago, Susanna had entered the hospital with a mysterious illness that tore her life apart. Now, on April 18th, with a name for her disease and treatment on the way, Susanna hopped into her stepdad's car and went home. Her recovery was slow and sometimes seemed ineffective. At one point, she grew paranoid that Stephen was going to leave her for her best friend. Even though this seemed like she was reverting to her old paranoia, it was actually a good sign. Research suggests that patients with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis recover quite literally in reverse. If she was going back to her old symptoms, that meant she was getting better. Even though her mental state still seemed delayed at times, she eventually regained her strength and cognitive ability. While living with her parents, she read David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest in an attempt to build up her vocabulary, something she believed she lost during her time in the hospital. 
After six months, she was able to return to the New York Post. The Post assigned her what would become the biggest article in her career, My Mysterious Lost Month of Madness, which chronicled her search for a diagnosis and her time at the hospital. It was published in October 2009. Her story would become a beacon of hope to others with mysterious illnesses, as well as people who already knew they had anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. Many were diagnosed, treated, and became free of their suffering when they found Susanna's article and showed them to their doctors, urging them to test for the condition. Because of the disease wreaking havoc on her memory, Susanna couldn't remember the majority of her hospital stay. To write the article, she put her journalism experience to good use and interviewed her doctors and family to find out what exactly happened to her. After it was published as an article, her findings were all put into her 2012 memoir, Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness. Through researching the disease, she not only learned more about herself, but the disease in general. It pained her to think about how many people went undiagnosed. Because of its similarities to so many psychiatric disorders, anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis is extremely difficult to identify. Dr. Najjar estimated that 90% of sufferers went undiagnosed at the time of Susanna's illness. Susanna found instances of children with the disease being described as demonic creatures before they were finally diagnosed. They would become violent and speak in garbled sounds that, to some parents, sounded like foreign languages or speaking in tongues. Susanna's boyfriend, Stephen, can no longer watch the film The Exorcist. The classic scene of a young possessed girl convulsing in bed is too close to the night Susanna had a seizure on her pull-out couch. Susanna wondered how many children throughout history were exercised and then left to die because no one knew they were suffering from encephalitis. One man sent Susanna a video of his daughter, Emily, who was once so weak from the disease she couldn't even hold a spoon. Emily was close to death when the father found Susanna's story. Afterward, he urged doctors to test his daughter for anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. The tests came back positive, and Emily was able to make a full recovery. In the latest video, Emily was ice skating, as if she was never as weak as she once was. The father told Susanna that her story saved his daughter's life. Susanna often feels survivor's guilt, thinking about the people that weren't as lucky as she was. But when she thinks of stories like Emily's, she can't help but think of her medical journey as a gift, a gift that she can share with the world and hopefully continue to save lives. Susanna continues to write for the New York Post, as well as publishing books on mental health and the healthcare system. In 2015, she married Stephen Grywalski, the man who stood by her throughout her descent into madness. The fire that once devastated her mind has disappeared, and from its ashes, she has risen again. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. 
For more information on Susanna Cahalan and anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, amongst the many sources we used, we found Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness by Susanna Cahalan extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Brandon Rizzuto with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>